Last week we had a chance to look into an episode from the life of Jesus where he stepped up to the the very center of the most central feast in the religion of his day, the Feast of Tabernacles. And as the priests were pouring water over the altar, he stood up and said, if any person is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For a fountain will rise up within the man and spill out into eternal life. It will flow from within him. And then he stood up later in that same feast in the midst of the temple with thousands of people around and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. In that ceremony, they had lit candles to show that God Almighty was the light of the world. And yet Jesus stands up in the midst of that and says, I am the light of the world. And then later in that same feast, he said, if you abide in my word and my words abide in you, you're truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. We looked at those three passages last week. Jesus claiming to be the light. Jesus claiming to be the answer for the thirst of the human soul. Jesus claiming that if we abide in his teachings, we'll know truth, and truth will give freedom. And that ensued into a great argument where the people in the temple said, we're the chosen people, we've never been anyone's slaves since Moses led us up out of slavery. They overlooked the two deportations and a few other episodes, but they said, we've never been slaves. And Jesus said, any man who sins is a slave to sin. And they began a long discussion about what it means to be in sin and what it means to be set free. And could their religion set them free? And Jesus said, no. But he said, if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And they asked him, they said, are you greater than our father Abraham? And he said, before Abraham existed, before Abraham was, I am. Now in English, that looks a little bit odd in grammar. But in Hebrew, it was very clear. Because back in the early days of the people of Israel, when God called Moses to lead them out of slavery, he appeared to Moses in a bush And when Moses heard the voice saying, I'm sending you to free my people from slavery, he said, who shall I say has sent me? They'll never believe me. And the voice said, tell them I am has sent you. I am that I am. And it was the great name of God. In many of your translations, the modern translations, it's translated Yahweh or the Lord God Almighty. Jesus stood in this argument with these people in the center of the temple, and they said, are you greater than Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was Yahweh. And they put their hands to their ears. They started to tear their clothes. They ran and tried to grab stones to stone him for blasphemy, and he slipped out from their midst. And then John, in a masterful storytelling way, illustrates what did not become known there at that temple feast. He illustrates it through what happened to Jesus as he left the temple. And often this is the pattern in John and in the other Gospels. At the very place that you expect Jesus to be received, 
Jesus to be revered, Jesus to be accepted, he is cast out. And it seems that often when he's cast out is when he's found. And that's certainly the case here. He was walking from the temple precincts and his disciples were with them, I'm sure, all in, all in a muddle about what had happened. They just escaped death by a very narrow margin. And they saw a beggar on the side of the road and he was blind. And they were talking theology, of course, because Jesus had just given this great teaching at the center of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were talking theology and they saw this man and the disciples started to say, well, who... I wonder whose sin caused this man's blindness. That was the orthodoxy of the day, that, that, a, that a physical illness was brought on by sin. And then the big debate was, if somebody was born with a physical illness, would it mean that their parents' sin had caused it or something they were going to do in the future? And this was the, this was the essential debate the disciples were having. It must have saddened Jesus' heart. Because the orthodoxy of his day on this point was clearly wide of the mark of God's love and God's creativity. And they were arguing amongst themselves and they asked Jesus which, man's, which person's sin caused this man's blindness. And Jesus, as he often does and wants to do with us as well, corrects their poor theology. And he simply says, night is coming when no one can work. But while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He said it wasn't because this man sinned or his parents sinned, but it was to show the glory that God has given. And then he leaned down and he did something very odd. He spit on the ground. So much for a cosmic Christ, a very tangible earthy Christ. He spits on the ground in the dust of Jerusalem and he mixes it into a little batch of mud. He goes over to the man who probably in his blindness had been hearing this entire conversation and he'd heard it before. He'd heard this endless times. I wonder whose sin caused the guy's blindness. He'd heard this as people walked toward him and walked away from him. And then he hears Jesus spit on the ground and he can hear his finger turning it into a little, little bit of patch of mud. And he hears Jesus walk over toward him and he feels the coolness of his shadow as it comes across him. And he can sense Jesus' hands coming close to his eyes. And Jesus pushes down his eyelids and puts the moist mud on his eyelids. The man could have refused. This could have been a hoax. This could have been a joke. This man had been the brunt of many jokes, I'm sure. But he decided for some reason we don't know to go along with it. And then Jesus tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and, and John explains even what that word means because John was writing his gospel to an audience many of whom didn't know Hebrew and didn't know the Hebrew customs and Jesus says go wash off to the blind man he says go wash off in the pool of Siloam and, and John says which means sent the way Jesus was always referring to himself in the gospel of John. I'm the one who was sent. John, the most symbolic of the four gospels. John, in his literary fashion, saying, Jesus took this man, sent him to the place of the sent pool, sent him to the place where he would wash and be healed. But Jesus himself, we know, was the one who was sent. And there's a thread over thread over thread of symbolism. But from the man's point of view, this was all simply written down later, this part of it. All he knew is he had mud on his eyes 
and he knew his way to the pool of Siloam, and he walked down there, and he washed off, and he opened his eyes, and for the very first time in his life, he saw. It's not as though he had seen and lost his sight and now regained it. He'd never seen. I have a good friend who's uh, been here in chapel before, Ken Miedema, who is blind, a blind musician. But he can see slight shadows. And he has been able to since he was a child. He can see just slight shades of difference in, in, in contrast of light. And I've been with him many times as we've been in stores and he can hear conversations much further away. His hearing has become so acute. He can feel when people walk in a room. When you greet him, he'll say, boy, it's a cloudy day, Bart, isn't it? He'll think, how do you know? Or, he, or he'll, he'll say, I was uh, getting something at a store one time and I leaned down to, to look at uh, an, an article on the, on the shelf and he leaned down with me. And I thought, now how does he know I'm leaning down? Well, of course, he heard my voice go down as I was talking to him. His other senses were so acute, but in this man's case, he'd never seen a single shred of light. A single particle, a single human being. And all of a sudden, he washes in the pool of Siloam. And he can see perfectly, clearly, 2020. In color. What a shock. He goes back to his area of the city. And, and his neighbors, they are so taken by this, they assume that the guy's a double. They say, this can't be the guy. He's blind. This guy sees. He must have a twin we didn't know about. And the former blind man says, no, no, it's, it's I myself. And they said, what happened? And he said, well, the, the man they called Jesus made some mud. He put it in my, my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. I went, I washed, and I could see. In that very short descriptive sentence, we learn what this man's view of Jesus was at this point in time. He says, the man they called Jesus told me to do these things, and I did to him, he was a man. He wasn't even 100% sure his name was Jesus. He just said, that's what I heard them call him. And he did these things. I did it. And I see. That's all I know. Well, the people were a little nervous about this. Clearly a great miracle taken place. And, but the trouble was it taken place on the Sabbath. And the religious laws of their people said you were to do no work on the Sabbath. And so then they began to wonder, well, would spitting on the ground and making mud be considered work? It's unbelievable. Religion sometimes becomes so myopic, so narrow, so pinched, that they're overlooking the fact that this man can see and they're wondering if the one who healed him did work by stirring a little bit of dust and some spit. Sometimes theology can become blind to truth. So they take him to the orthodox teachers of the day, the great scripture scholars of the day, the Pharisees. And some of the scripture scholars of the day say, well, this man's clearly not from God because he worked on the Sabbath is the implication because he's a sinner, John says. But others of them say, well, wait a minute, sinners can't do miracles. God doesn't listen to them. And so even the religious folks were divided, we're told. You see, Jesus just simply didn't fit their worldview. He didn't fit their paradigm. He didn't fit what they thought a Messiah should look like, a prophet should look like, a rabbi should look like. He didn't fit it. They didn't know what to do with him. Here's a guy who heals on the Sabbath. 
any, any Messiah worth his salt would heal on Friday or Sunday or Monday, but not on Saturday, the Sabbath, the day of rest. He didn't fit, so what do you do with him? And yet you can't just throw him out. He's done a great miracle, a very good thing. And so they were very divided. Jesus doesn't always fit our paradigms. And I've been trying to follow Jesus Christ for 26 years now. And the Jesus of my college years grew and grew and grew. And the Jesus of my 40s is quite different than the Jesus I knew in my 20s. Jesus didn't change, did he? Hopefully my ability to perceive him has changed. He didn't fit their paradigm and they didn't know what to do with it. So they called in the blind man, the former blind man, who we never learn his name, by the way. And they asked him, well, what do you think? Kind of an interesting question. The guy's a blind beggar. The greatest minds of the theological world are asking the blind beggar what he thinks. And then he changes his mind. Remember what he thought before? He said, well, he's a man they called Jesus. That's all he knew about the guy. You know, he never saw Jesus by the way. He went to the pool of Siloam. It doesn't appear that Jesus went with him. When he opened his eyes, Jesus was nowhere around. He didn't even know what he looked like. But he changes his mind. They ask him, well, what do you think? And he says simply, he is a prophet. You see, his view of Christ was expanding. He's a man they call Jesus. Now he's saying, no, no, he's not just a man they call Jesus, though he is that. He's a prophet. Well, that, that made the Pharisees mad. And some of the ones who thought, well, maybe Jesus is for real, began to disbelieve. And the ones who disbelieved hardened their view. So they called in the former blind man's parents to see what they thought. And they said, is this your son? And, they, and if so, how, how is it that he can see? And they said, well, we know he's our son. We've got that one covered. We know he was born blind. But how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. John tells us they did this because they knew that the the religious folks of the day, the theologians of the day, and the Pharisaical movement had decided if anybody says Jesus is the Christ, they would be excommunicated from the synagogue, the central local institution for worship and, and community. They would be shunned in essence. And they didn't want that. Not in a rural society, not in a kinship society. That was the ultimate horror to be cut off from your people. So they call the blind, former blind man back in. They let his parents go. They call in the blind. Now they've hardened their attitudes. And they say, look, give glory to God. Implication, not to Jesus. Give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. We know it. Ostensibly because he healed on the Sabbath. And then the blind man comes through again. Former blind man. He says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I do know one thing. I was blind and now I see. I know one thing. I was blind and now I, now I see. You, you put that in your tea and drink it. I don't know whether the man was a sinner or not. All I know is I was born blind and I'm looking at you right now. What do you think he was? That's the implication. This guy's getting feisty. He's never even seen Jesus. And he's standing up to these people, the very people who would later kill Jesus. And he knew what he was standing up against. 
So they were, they were flustered. They said, well, uh, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the former blind man says, look, I've already told you that. And you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Oh, wait. Do you want to become his disciples too? I think there's a tad of sarcasm. It drove them into a fury. They said, you're this fellow's disciples. We're disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, implication. We don't know that he spoke to Jesus. We know God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Well, that should shut up the former blind man. There he is in the temple precincts with the greatest theologians who are saying, we're disciples of Moses, not, not this fool. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man is from. Well, the former blind man, he's getting tougher and tougher. And he says, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from? Yet he opened my eyes? I mean, here's a guy who opens the eyes of a man born blind, and you don't know where he comes from? This is incredible. You say you're Moses' disciples, and you know where he came from. This guy does the greatest thing we've ever seen, and you don't know. And then he goes on and quotes to them their theology. He says, now we know that God does not listen to sinners. That was their theology, not Jesus, and not good theology. But that was the orthodox theology. He says, now we know that, and they would have had to agree to that. And we know that he listens to the godly man who does his will. Implication, are you saying Jesus was a godly man who did his will? And if you are, then why would you call him a sinner? Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. More of their theology thrown right back to them. And so they did the only thing they could do when you can't answer truth. They attacked the man rather than his arguments. It's called ad hominem. It happens all the time right here on this campus. When somebody's beating you in an argument and you say, well, they're a fool anyway. Well, they don't know anything. Well, they only got a C plus. Who cares what they think? You know, when you can't beat their argument, you attack their character, which has nothing to do with the particular argument that you're dealing with. That's what they did here. They said, hey, you've been steeped in sin since your birth. That's why you were born blind for crying out loud. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They threw him out not just to the temple, but they threw him out of the community of faith out of the congregation and the synagogue. Do you see what's happening here? The one who couldn't see was seeing more and more and more. And the ones who said they could see were seeing less and less and less. And both were becoming more sure of their positions. Well, the man goes off. He's now thrown out of the synagogue. And Jesus hears about it, John tells us. And Jesus seeks out the man. I, I don't know. There may be other places where Jesus does this, but I, I don't remember any offhand. Or Jesus went and he seeks out the man. He hears that he's been cut off from the, the synagogue. He finds the man and he asks the man, Do you believe in the Son of Man? It's an interesting moment for the former blind man. He's sitting somewhere, we don't know where, and Jesus comes and he hears those footsteps which he heard the day that he had been healed. 
He hears the muttering of the disciples. He looks up and he sees them for the first time. I think he must have known for sure it was Jesus. But there's, a, there's an awesome and terrible humility that overtakes the man. And Jesus comes up with the very voice that he'd said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The man heard the voice. He looked in the face of Jesus. He probably looked down out of reverence. And the voice of Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And his answer is really wonderful. He says, who is he, sir? Tell me who he is, so that I may believe in him. I don't know who the Son of Man is. But if you tell me who he is, I'm going to go believe in him, whoever it is. There was this readiness to trust, this readiness to exert faith, this, this posture that, that was leaning forward into truth. And Jesus simply says, you've now seen the Son of Man. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And that was an awesome moment for this former blind man to realize that he didn't have to go somewhere else to believe in the Son of Man, but that he was addressing and being addressed by the Son of Man. Then the man said, Lord, first time he uses that word. Remember, at first he was a man they said was Jesus. Then he was a prophet. Now he says, Lord, I believe. And then he worshipped Jesus. And Jesus said a strange thing. He said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now, on other occasions, Jesus has said, I don't come in to judge the world. And here he says, for judgment I've come. Which is it? Jesus was a judgment, but he didn't come in to judge. Jesus' very presence judged people because he was truth. And you decide about truth whether you believe in it or you don't. Whether you believe in him or you don't. He doesn't judge you in that sense. You are judged by his very presence and your response to it. And then the Pharisees say, well, are we blind too? They would happen to be hanging around. And Jesus says something very caustic. He says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. What was Jesus doing in this lived out parable? And what can we learn from it? I want to make a few observations and then close with a story by George MacDonald, which illustrates it better than I can say it. It seems to me at least one of the main themes and one of the reasons John put this in his gospel is to get across the truth that we're always moving either toward or away from truth. We're never neutral. We're either becoming more truthful and living more in the truth, more in reality, more in Christ-likeness, more in holiness, more in the ways of God, more in the ways of the kingdom, whatever phrase you want to put on it, we're either becoming more like that or we're becoming less like that. There is no neutral territory. Every decision you make will take you in one direction or the other, in toward deeper blindness or greater sight. The implied question in the story is, which one are you? 
Are you the blind man trying to figure out why you've been born blind and why your lot in life is so bad? Who then gradually becomes full of sight, not just physical sight. He had a spiritual sight by the end of the episode where he was confessing Jesus as the Son of Man and worshiping him. Or you like the Pharisees. You think you know everything. And you're really becoming more and more and more blind to truth. We're always moving toward one, toward or away from true sight. Second, the humility is the basis for growing sight. That knowing that we're blind opens us up to the possibility of sight. But thinking that we see and know everything closes us to realities that we've not yet experienced. Anybody who's raised a seventh grader knows that they know everything. They roll their eyes at you. Only like seventh graders can do. I've never seen another human being other than a seventh grader roll their eyes the way they do it. And when they do it, it says, boy, are you stupid. I know everything. And you know they know very little. But the more they roll their eyes, the more convinced they are. And the more pinched and closed and narrow becomes their view of reality. Humility says, I know some, but I need to know more. Third, the object of our faith needs to be a worthy object. The Pharisees in the story, the object of their faith was the traditions of the elders. The object of faith of the blind man was Jesus Christ himself. Life in human form, life in human flesh. The object of our faith must be a worthy object to be beneficial. The German people, many of them, not all, put their faith in a young leader named Adolf Hitler. And he delivered on many of his promises. But it was the worst object of faith they could have found. And it caused the death of millions and millions of people. On the other hand, a motley band of people put their faith in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. In hospitals and universities and places of care and families have been knit back together and wars have been stopped. Because Jesus is not only a worthy object of faith, he's the worthy object. And finally, fourth and last... I think this story teaches us that we need to cultivate a readiness to believe, a readiness to exert faith, a readiness to trust, a posture that says, I want to move into truth. Now, this obviously at a college, we teach you to be skeptical. We teach you to ask tough questions of every argument. Am I saying that we should believe everything that comes down the pike? Absolutely not. But we should be ready to believe in truth when we've tested it and when it's proven sure. It will never prove perfectly sure, though. There will always be a step of faith needed. There cannot be a demand for total truth. The truly educated person is not the person who's so smart he's committed to nothing. But rather, it's the one who's asking questions in order to learn so that they can learn in order to commit to the truth. And the fruit of that is that their lives become more evenly loving 
Thomas Merton, the great 20th century mystic, said, What is knowledge that does not lead to love? A common theme in the Middle Ages, lost today on many. Let me close with this story. It's from Curdie and the Princess, or The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald, where I think he gets at this truth that we are either becoming more whole, more beautiful, more truly human, more Christ-like, Christ was the truest human, or we're becoming, as he puts it, more beastly. In the story, Curdie is a young minor boy. Oops, I'm supposed to stay at the mic. I forgot that. In the story, Curdie is a young minor boy, and he's been sent on a great mission by a wise woman who is the Christ figure. And in this scene, the short scene that I'm going to read, he's meeting with this wise old woman who's going to give him his assignment to save his kingdom from destruction. But she first has him thrust his arms into something that looks like a fire and it hurts very much, but then it quits hurting. And when he pulls his arms out, they're very pure looking. And then she says to Curdie, the little boy, the minor boy, have you ever heard what the philosophers say? That men were once animals. No, ma'am. All men, if they do not take care, go down to the hill, to the animal's country. And that many men actually all their lives are going to be beasts. People knew it once, but it's long since they forgot it. I'm not surprised to hear it, ma'am, when I think of some of our miners. Ah, Kerdy, you must beware how you say this man or that man be traveling beastward. There are not nearly so many going that way as at first sight you might think. When you met your father on the hill tonight, you stood and you spoke together on the same spot. And although one of you was going up and the other coming down the hill, at the little distance no one could have told which was bound in the one direction and which in the other. Just so, two people may be at the same spot in manners and behavior. And yet one may be getting better and better and the other worse, which is just the greatest of all differences. Now listen to me, Gertie. Since it's always what men do that makes them go down beastward, that makes them become less than men, that change always comes first in their hands, They do not know it, of course, for the beast does not know that he is a beast. And the nearer a man gets to being a beast, the less he knows it. Now here's what the fire has done to your hands, love. It's made your hands knowing and wise. It's brought your real hands so near the outside of your flesh gloves that you will henceforth be able to know at once the hand of a man who is going into a beast Nay, more, you'll be able to feel the foot of the beast he's growing into. I suppose, ma'am, that you want me then to warn everyone whose hand tells me that he's growing into a beast because, as you say, he doesn't know it himself. The princess smiled said, Much good that will do, Kerdy. I don't say there are no cases in which this would be of use, but they're very rare. To such a 